the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave, him, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I want to invite you to be seated. I want to introduce you to our preacher this morning. This is my father. Thank you. I just want, I just want you to know that they don't do that for me every they week. Don't. No, no. Uh, it is great to have Dad here. This is John Yates, number two. Um, I am still known as Little John or Young John when I'm up in Virginia, uh, which is really nice. I'm finally at that point where I really appreciate that. <laughs> Dad was for many years, for four decades, the rector, senior pastor of the Falls Church uh, up in Falls Church, Virginia. That's where I grew up. And um, it's kind of hard to introduce someone that you've known your whole life. But here's what I'll tell you. Folks often want to know, you know, what was it like growing up as a pastor's kid? You know, you know pastor's kids kind of go one way or the other. And I said, well, um, apart from kind of living in a fishbowl my whole life on display, it really was wonderful. And I explained that um, what I heard on Sunday morning, I saw Monday through Saturday in the lives of my parents. And so for me, as I grew up, there was an absolute integrity between the gospel that was preached and then the gospel that was lived. So I'm grateful to have grown up in a home like that. I'm grateful to have Dad here preaching this morning. Let me pray for him, and we'll hand things over to him. Lord God, we thank you for this day. Would you pour out your grace on us? Teach us from your word. Speak through Dad that we might know you and love you and follow you all our days for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, I'm grateful that he had such a good mother who did such a good job raising him. (laughs) Have you ever wondered what it would be like for Jesus to come into your home In John chapter 12, which was just read to us, we have an eyewitness account of when that actually happened. So I just want to tell you this story today and help you think through what it means for us. Jesus had three very close friends living in the little village of Bethany, which is just about a half an hour's walk just east of the city walls of Jerusalem. There were two sisters and their brother, and we don't really know how they became good friends of Jesus, but we do know that Jesus had spent time in their home before, and uh, they were very dear to him. And so learning 
a few weeks earlier that Lazarus was ill and dying of a sudden uh, terrible sickness of some sort, that was a grievous thing for Jesus. And by the time Jesus arrived, his friend, you know the story, Lazarus had died. But then the Lord had come and stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and had commanded Lazarus to come back to life, to come forth. And there's really no other story in the Gospels that describes in such detail um, and deep emotion what this was like for Jesus and his friends. And even today, if you're there, you can descend into the place where they believe Lazarus actually walked forth out of the tomb, and it's a very moving and inspiring place. Well, anyway, as soon as word spread that Lazarus had been raised from the dead, uh, Jesus had left the region very quickly because the religious leaders had determined that this was the last straw. They had to get rid of this man who was claiming to be the Messiah. Things also became dangerous for Lazarus because he was living proof living proof that nothing was impossible with Jesus. And so it was a tense time, a confusing time for Lazarus, uh, for his family. Time went by sometime later, just a few days before the huge Passover holiday in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus came quietly back to Bethany. And the sisters decided to throw a party to celebrate a dinner party in their home. Not all the disciples were there, probably a lot of the neighbors as well. And I want you to think with me this morning about just what happened when Jesus came into their home. John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at table with Jesus. Now, you know, people often threw parties in honor of Jesus. And he seemed, he seemed to enjoy these parties. He seemed to love them. Celebrations, meals with uh, friends and new believers. But this party was quite different. Uh, this would be their final celebration with Christ. And the Lord's heart, he was not happy that night. His heart was heavy. Because following day, he would enter the city and throngs would come out and welcome him. We call it Palm Sunday. But for Jesus, it was not a celebration. He was deeply burdened. It seems really that there was only one other person who understood exactly what was happening. And we'll get to her in a moment. But let me just put this thought before you at first. When Christ comes into a home everyone's response is a little different. And I want us to observe the different ways that these different people responded and see if we can draw some application for ourselves. Because Christ is still alive. And he comes into our homes even today. And if you've entrusted yourself to him, opening your heart to Christ, then the door of your home has been opened to him as well. And he's present. Okay, so, so what happened in the story? First, there's Lazarus. He's seated next to Jesus, and the disciples and the neighbors surely wanted, they wanted to hear from Lazarus. They wanted him to tell, what in the world was it like to die? Uh, 
was it just like going to sleep? Or did he see God? Did he see heaven? Did he see hell? But you know, Lazarus doesn't say a word. At least if he did, John didn't seem to think it was important enough to record it. So we don't know. But what we do know about Lazarus is that he must have been thinking quite deeply about what had happened to him, about dying and being in the tomb for several days, and then being called back by Christ, and and what this experience would mean for the rest of his life. He must have been thinking about that. And, And now he knew because of what had happened that his life was going to be in danger too. He would be hunted down also by the enemies of Christ. But I don't think that really mattered to Lazarus now because now he had no fear of death. Uh, Jesus had already raised him from the dead once and he could certainly do it again. So Lazarus doesn't have any fears now. Historians tell us that Lazarus became a bold apostle for Christ. And eventually, he took the gospel uh, across the sea to the island of Cyprus, where he became the leader of the church in Cyprus. And in fact, if you go to Cyprus today, an ancient church still stands there uh, in his honor, and you can visit the place where Lazarus was buried. So Lazarus was not only a new man, but we think that the power of Christ had freed him up from any fears now. And being in the presence of Jesus uh, reaffirmed. He was, he was ready for anything now. Anything God had for him, he was ready for it. So then there's Martha. You know about Martha. She oversaw the meal. She served everybody. And everything we read in the Gospels about Martha tells us that she must have been the older sister. She just has big sister written all over her. She's the responsible one. And, uh, you know, on another occasion with dinner guests, you remember that story? She got upset with her sister Mary because Mary wasn't helping her with the dishes, wasn't helping her with the meal. And you remember Jesus had cautioned Martha about a critical spirit? And now it seems like Martha has changed. Uh, She's the sort who's consistently thinking of other people and, and what they would need and how to provide for them. And at one time, she seemed to feel that everybody else should be the same way. But now she's she's gotten past that. And uh, she knew that it was important for everybody to celebrate together, to celebrate her brother's new life and to honor Jesus. And now she just seems to be glad to take responsibility herself. And she, she doesn't seem to be judging anybody now. She loved Jesus just like her brother loved Jesus. But Martha doesn't seem to have been a very expressive person. Um, She was a doer. You know the type. She was less demonstrative, less emotional. She kept in the background. Martha honored Jesus with her work. And she found great joy in serving the Lord and in serving others in practical ways. She seemed to find peace of mind in that. And for her, it was enough. But then there's her sister Mary, who uh, took 
center stage. We're not really sure she intended to do this, but I'm not sure Mary ever planned anything very far in advance. She seems she was sort of a, a feeler, you know. She's just kind of guided by her emotions. Let me read the next verse. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Sometime during the meal, Mary got up, left the room briefly, and then returned carrying something that nobody had ever seen before. And it, it was something she had hidden away among her most private possessions. It was a delicate uh, decanter filled with a terribly costly perfume. I remember when I was a little boy, my mother had some, she would emphasize to me how fine this perfume was. It was called Chanel Number no. 5. Do they still have that? Well, it must have been very expensive. She was very careful with it. But I think about this perfume that Mary had is sort of like Chanel number no. 500. I mean, this was the max. It was, it was a precious lotion that had a powerful fragrance. It came from India, and there was a lot of it. Judas will say in a minute that it was equal in value to a common laborer's wages for a whole year. This was a gift of enormous value to anyone. And, you know, the scholars have wondered, what in the world was this woman doing with such a valuable possession? And one theory is that this alabaster jar was Mary's dowry. And in that culture, a bride was required to bring into marriage her dowry equivalent to her place in society. And, and if a woman had no dowry, it meant no marriage, basically is what it meant. Well, if that's true, then Mary's gift was of immense personal value to her. And it may, it may just be, in fact, that that very evening, Mary was relinquishing her hopes for marriage when she poured out her dowry upon Jesus. It may be her future with a husband, her hopes for children, were all wrapped up in that gift. And if this is true, Mary was basically giving all she had, giving herself to Jesus for good, forever. But there was more to it than that because of what her sacrifice meant for Jesus. And, and here's the thing. This was the last tender expression of love shown to Jesus by anyone before his death. And he said that she was anointing his body for burial. Now, that must have silenced everybody in the room when he said that. You know, even though he had told his friends uh, on various occasions that he was going to be killed... It seems like Mary was the only one who really grasped that. And when he had told them that the good shepherd must lay down his life for the sheep, perhaps she alone had understood what he was saying. And she understood his sorrow. And she was grieving as well. And wanted to do something extravagant to show him that he was treasured. 
They all treasured the Lord, but she's the one that night who dramatically showed him. And then there's Judas. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor, he said. It's worth a year's wages. And then John says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Judas is the one disciple who spoke out, and he was angry. This valuable perfume could have raised a good deal of money. Uh, From his perspective, Mary was being uh, completely irresponsible. It was a, a wasteful extravagance. And he's the only one of the 12 who immediately computed what it was worth. But he had no perception of the importance of Mary's action. I guess by now he had become accustomed to taking uh, what wasn't his. And he only saw things in terms of monetary value. He had a selfish, critical spirit that was dominated by greed. And so what he was saying is basically, don't waste that on Jesus. One day a parishioner in Falls Church came to me and he said that he had learned of some stained glass windows that could be purchased and they cost a lot of money but he felt they might honor the Lord and bring special beauty to a place in our new building and and so now they are in a small uh, chapel we call it Cranmer Chapel and they've really wonderfully transformed uh, what's not a great space into a, uh, a beautiful holy place of worship. So what was just a, a room has now become a, a, a beautiful place. So this was an unnecessary and an extravagant deed done anonymously simply out of love for Christ. And, and given the huge financial need that we were under at that time, Uh, Someone might have said, well, it'd be much better just to give that money to help pay off the mortgage. But I don't think so. There's one more thing. And when you read the other gospel accounts that, that might be referring to this dinner party, you get the sense that the disciples were somehow uneasy and uncomfortable at what Mary did. Uh, But I don't think it was for the same reason as Judas. Mary was probably still a fairly young woman. Uh, Jesus' disciples were young men. Some of them were married, but not all of them were. Now, in that culture, women were extremely modest in the way they dressed and behaved. Taking her hair down as she did before those men, pulling off her headscarf and letting it hang free. In that day, that was something no respectable woman would do. 
um, it was provocative. And it's hard to express how shocking it would have been. Other, other accounts imply that Mary didn't simply anoint the Lord's feet, but also his head, his entire body, pouring this perfume over his clothing and with her long hair drying his feet. I'll just tell you, every man in the room knew that the only man allowed to see a woman with her hair down would be her husband. And then only in the most private and intimate moments of married life. And these were good men. They were respect, respectful, faithful. And I think it made them uncomfortable when this happened. And it would have brought thoughts to their mind and, and, uh, 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 that these good men were ashamed of. And you can just see them averting their eyes saying, we, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be seeing this. What is she thinking? So try to imagine all the different emotions going on in the room at that moment. It was, it was a tense moment. And Jesus spoke into the moment in a surprising way. He said, don't criticize Mary. Don't be embarrassed by this. She's doing this. She's offering her attention and care for me in an extravagant and unselfconscious way because she realizes that I will very soon be dead. She's anointing my body for burial. He basically says, don't judge her. This isn't a waste. And, and maybe he looked at Judas and would have said something like that. Certainly, Judas, we must be feeding the poor. How many times have we talked about this? How many times have we taken the money we had and fed the poor? But friends, I'm only going to be with you for a few more days. And then I'll be gone. And Mary is the only one who sees that the cross awaits me. And she only realizes that we've now reached the end and there won't be any more opportunities to show me your love. You have to wonder, how was it that Mary, of all of them, was so perceptive? Mary appears three times in the Gospels. And each time she's pictured as either sitting or kneeling at the feet of Jesus. To be as close to him as she could and to hear everything, anything that he said. That was her goal. That's how she learned. That's how she discerned so much from the Lord. She was focused on him. And I just wonder in our busy days, are, are we like that? Honestly, I don't know any other way to mature in the wisdom of God or to be deepened in the things of God, to develop genuine discernment, than to have that kind of an attitude so do we need to ask God to help us learn how to do this, how to study the word of Christ, how to pray, how to listen? Do we need to ask him to help us to reflect, to discern, to be led by the Holy Spirit as Mary was? Let me just finish by broadening the question and asking you if you think you might be like anyone in the story. Perhaps you're in some way like Lazarus. Have you had a, a close encounter with death lately? Is there someone in your life who's dying? 
Are you afraid for them or for your own health? God wants you to understand that when you entrust your life to the Lord, He can enable you to have your fears taken away. He can take them away. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. That's John chapter 5, verse 24. Or... Are you like Martha in any way? Do you find your joy just in doing for other people? If, if you're like that, I'll tell you, you're a huge blessing to the rest of us. <laughs> um, you remind us that the one who serves is the one who is like Christ. But just be sure that you don't fall into the trap of evaluating your worth by how much you get done. Or, or judging others by how much they do for God or for others. If you're like, if you are like Martha, m- might it be that perhaps you need to learn how to be more expressive of your love to the Lord? Perhaps to learn to be more of a worshiper like Mary was. Ask God to help you in that. Jesus said in John 4, the Father seeks those who worship him truly in spirit. And in reality. Or I wonder if any of us are at all like Judas. Do you, are you someone who tends to go very quickly to the bottom line? Is life about being in control of things? Always being sensible, always being careful to take care of yourself? Are you skeptical of those who want to do extravagant things for God? Ask God to free you up. A man said, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. But God said to him, you're a fool. Or or, are we maybe like the disciples in some ways? Are, Are you young? Are you a young person trying to find your way as a follower of Christ? Or maybe you're like them that that night in that. Do you ever find yourselves uncomfortable that others seem to be so much closer to the Lord than you are? Or maybe sometimes you're confused or even embarrassed by the emotions of some other believer who just seems to be so sure and so exuberant in their relationship with God and the way they speak of Jesus. Does their emotion or does their informality, does it sometimes put you off? Do you need to learn to be more accepting, uh, less judgmental of others' motives? Ask God to help you. St. Paul said some of us are weak and some of us are strong in our faith. But we're not to judge God's servants. That's Romans 14. And then finally, what about Mary? Mary relinquished all the dreams that mattered to her, we think, before Jesus came. And she had no more concern now about what others think she abandoned all thoughts of maintaining her dignity Mary doesn't care because she knows who Jesus is and she knows 
that he is dying for her and for us all. And she loves him for it. He owed her absolutely nothing, and yet he died for her sins. And she somehow understood the cross and the death of Christ, that it was for us. So have, have we come to understand that, that it was for us? It makes sense to me that people who don't understand that Jesus had to die in this way might be put off by emotional worship. Or people who don't understand that Jesus died for us might, might find it hard to understand how people could give sacrificially to the church or to the work of God. People who don't understand the cross, they don't often know what to do with their pain. They don't often know how to pray or how to view death. Because she saw that God was giving his only son as a sacrifice for our sins. Mary wanted to give him all she had. And she understood that what he wants is us. To give in fully to him. Not long ago, I heard um, Tim Keller say that the hardest thing to give is in. To give in. I give in. And as I was listening to Tim speak about this, it reminded me of something our family saw years ago in the north of England. We were in the Yorkshire Dales. Remember that? We stayed at that sheep farm. Uh, one summer, and it was time to disinfect the sheep. Um, and because the, the man, the farmer there wanted, he loved his sheep, he wanted them to be healthy and productive, uh, he would lift them one by one and drop them into a deep tub of disinfectant. And he would push them all the way under so that they might be cleansed. And I'm sure those poor sheep uh, thought that the shepherd was trying to hurt them, but he was actually trying to save them. The, the sheep don't know what he's doing, but they know the shepherd. And so they submit, they give in. And then they can be healthy and productive sheep. When Christ comes into my life, this is the lesson the good shepherd wants me to learn, to give in, to give myself, my past, my future, to him, to live in gratitude to him, for him, to live with him, with his help, to live like him, so that my life also won't be wasted, but that my life might be useful. So we see in Martha's house that night that Jesus loved all of them, Martha, Mary, Judas, the disciples. And what he wanted was simply for them to give themselves to him in trust and love. That's what he wants of us. How do we do it? Simply begins with prayer. And so as I close with prayer, you might want to pray quietly with me. Thank you, dear Lord, for the blessings of this life, above all for your love. Help me, I pray, honestly, to open the door of my life and of my home 
to you. Please be in my mind, my decisions, my words, my actions. Please be in my home, my relationships and actions there in every room, every moment, my resting, my working, my reading, my serving. Please may I grow to serve you like Martha and to love you like Mary and to trust you like Lazarus. Oh, for your dear sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.